Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Yes, you rang the proper bell. This is the place of which you've heard. A home from home for some. So come, come in. Unwrap, dip a warm beverage, bowl some treats. Leave the dangers on the streets. There's nothing here to harm you. You're safe here in the nook. Find a chum. Snuggle down. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and this is Tales to Terrify. Apropos of nothing... We had our first, albeit minor, snowfall of the season at the beginning of the week. It began Monday afternoon, Veterans Day, and over a few hours left what might be called a dusting on most horizontal surfaces. The dusting survived the night, and by the next day, the settled snow on grass and awnings, parked cars and such had turned to ice crystals. Because we had rather horrible early fall heat— It was in the 80s just a few days ago. Most of the trees are still green and unshed, and the snow is a strange contrast on limbs and still-leaved branches. Well, enough of that. We have new art on the wall. It is, dare I say, a minimalist thing, quite lovely, quite chilling if you've lived any length of time in the Midwest, The painting is by Elsa Munoz. I saw a piece of hers recently when Tessilia and I went to the annual Day of the Dead exhibit at the National Museum of Mexican Art here in Chicago. Miss Munoz is not an illustrator, as is typical with the work that we've had on our homepage. She's a painter 
who typically works in oil on canvas. She received her Bachelor of Fine Arts degree from the American Academy of Art in Chicago in 2006 and has received very positive attention from curators and collectors alike for her realist oil paintings. Her subject matter is diverse and includes landscapes, seascapes, still lifes, interiors, and the human figure. Elsa is currently represented by Sigmund Voss Gallery in Chicago. The image that first attracted me to her work was the still life of a window. The play of light becoming darkness was incredible. Without a single image of the demonic or supernatural, no monsters, no zombies, nothing but a window and encroaching night, Elsa evoked a feeling of dread. Of course, it's possible that what I wanted to see in it was dread, that someone else would see something entirely different, something utterly benign. But for me, it was darkness coming. The painting we have on the wall of the nook for this month is called Tornado 17. Ms. Munoz has a series of tornado paintings. I liked this one. I hope you'll go to the homepage and have a look and see if it doesn't give you a feeling of impending doom. Go to her website. Have a look at her work. I think you'll like it. Jumping right in, Joe McKinney is our author of the night. He wrote the Stoker-nominated short story, Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens, which we presented in show 72 as part of this year's Stoker Roundup. Joe is a San Antonio, Texas police sergeant. His job is to help run the city's 911 dispatch center. Joe is also a writer of horror, crime, and science fiction, whose short stories and novellas have been published in more than 30 publications and anthologies. His longer works include the four-part Dead World series, these parts being Dead City, Apocalypse of the Dead, Flesh Eaters, and The Zombie King. He also wrote the science fiction disaster tale, Quarantined, Bram Stoker nominated in 2009, and the crime novel, Dodging Bullets. Upcoming and recent releases include the horror novels, Lost Girl of the Lake, The Red Empire, and The Charge. With Michelle McCrary, Joe edited the zombie-themed anthology, Dead Set, and with Mark Onspaw, The Forsaken an abandoned building-themed anthology. Most recently, Joe's story, Do No Harm, appeared in the anthology Fear the Reaper from Crystal Lake Publishing. So now, here is the first of two tales from Joe McKinney for this evening. It is A Little Crimson Stain. Donnie Ross knew the little girl was dead the instant he saw her picture in the attic of the Wilmington townhome. He gasped and stopped short. His gaze flicked to Cohen and Curtis, but neither man had noticed his reaction. Both were too busy fussing over a dusty porcelain tea set. Slowly, like two heavy wheels reluctant to turn, Donnie's eyes moved back toward the dead girl's picture. 
With her eyes closed, one hand nested in her lap, she might have been sleeping, but Donnie knew better. In her black, papery dress, her features as wooden and as doll-like with rigor mortis as the doll she was holding, she was most certainly dead. He swallowed hard. The picture disturbed him, even horrified him, and yet he was completely fascinated. Postmortem photography such as this was common between 1845 and 1925, though this example was almost certainly from around 1905. It was very Edwardian. Her clothes helped to date her, but so too did some basic history. Until 1900, most middle-class families dressed and prepared their loved ones for burial at home, an operation customarily performed in the front parlor. But as professional funeral homes opened up, this tradition became a mark of the provincial and the poor. So much so that in 1910, the Ladies' Home Journal issued a decree that the front parlor should be forevermore referred to as the living room. Funeral establishments were then free to adopt the more familiar and less threatening attribution of funeral parlors. Donnie, who'd made his living as an antiques acquisition agent for the auction house of Harris Sadler, Inc., had once delivered much the same lesson on an episode of Antiques Roadshow, and the show's producers loved it. So much so that they'd asked him back four times. But the dead girl's picture meant that he was probably wasting his time here in this dusty attic. Photography used to be expensive, and death was one of the only occasions important enough to justify the expense. That meant they were a middle-class commodity. And that, in turn, meant that everything in this attic was likely to be middle-class, too. Donnie sighed. Another road trip wasted. He scanned the rest of the attic, his practiced eye hoping to catch sight of something unusual as he stifled the need to cough. Intense morning sunlight poured in through the large open window opposite him. White silky curtains billowed on the breeze. The dust clothes covering the furniture fluttered gently. Opening the window was a wasted effort, he thought. Airing the place out had done nothing for the dust. He was going to be miserable with sneezing and sniffling all the way back to Greensboro. He could already feel it coming on. And then he saw the doll. Donnie blinked in surprise. It was a Bebe Bisque doll. He could see that through the layers of dust covering it, but it wasn't done in the usual French or German style. The clothes were simpler, more American. French and German dolls had round, cherub-like faces with enormously round blue eyes that always reminded Donnie of the anime cartoons of Japan. From its clothes to its facial features to the eggshell fragility of its cream-colored cheeks, this doll, perhaps 24 inches high, was something else entirely. Something uniquely American. Dolls weren't Donnie's forte. His specialty was furniture. But he knew the basics, just like he knew the basics of sports memorabilia and landscape paintings and model trains and a hundred other species of attic treasures. Donnie knelt down next to the little figure and examined its fingers and the joints where the arm pieces met. These dolls usually showed signs of wear, nicks and cuts and gouges and porcelain, and so the value at auction could range from the ultra-rare six-figure examples to the modestly worn ones that might fetch a few hundred dollars on a lucky day. This one was very clean. 
It was better than clean, he corrected himself. It, it was amazing. Is that? Frank said, gasping. Donnie glanced up at him. Frank put his hand over his mouth, stifling a giggle. Herb came over to stand by Frank's side. Both men were wide-eyed. Oh, my God, Herb said. I can barely breathe. I know, Frank said. He took Frank's hand and squeezed. Donnie shared their excitement. This was exactly what they'd hoped to find when Frank and Herb first contacted him about this house. The woman whose death had created the opportunity for them to search the attic was the daughter of the fin de siècle actress Marianne Staples, who at one time had lived with the American doll maker Christian Mueller. They had two daughters together. Mueller's dolls rarely came up for auction, but when they did, they fetched high prices, even when the condition was less than ideal. If this was an authentic Mueller, Donnie figured, it could bring $130,000 at auction, easily. Donnie removed a fingerprinting brush from his shirt pocket and gently cleaned away some of the dust from the doll's face. Except for a little dark spot just below the left eye, the doll's condition was marvelous. He worked on the spot with the brush. It wasn't dust. Can you see Mueller's mark? Frank asked. It should be just behind the ear, right at the hairline. I know, Donnie said, suddenly irritable. The spot wasn't coming off and he didn't like people hovering over him while he worked on something as delicate as this. But the more he worked on the spot, the more troubling it became. Then it hit him what the spot was. He flinched away from it. What's wrong? Frank said. Donnie didn't answer. He stood up and went to the little dead girl's picture on the sideboard on the opposite side of the room. The doll she was holding, the clothes were different, but that little spot just below the eye... That little dark stain, it was the same. Ugh, Frank said, covering his mouth again. That's ghastly. It's the same doll, Donnie said. Look at the little crimson stain below the eye. It's in black and white, Herb said. How can you tell that's crimson? Look at the cracked veins around the girl's eyes. Those aren't crow's feet, not at her age. That girl died of consumption. She was probably coughing up blood to the very end. Oh, Frank said. He shivered. Ghastly. Yeah, Donnie agreed. What do you want to do? Herb asked. I have to take it with me, Donnie said. I know an expert in Raleigh. I can stop there on my way home to Greensboro. I'll let you know what I find out. Definitely, Herb said. He squeezed Frank's hand again, his grin a mile wide. This could be a major score. Before leaving Wilmington, Donnie stopped off at a small diner for an early lunch. He'd taken quite a few pictures of the doll with his iPhone, and after ordering a Diet Coke and a hamburger, he emailed them to Marty Wright, a doll expert he sometimes worked with, and waited to see how long it would take her to call him back. The waitress didn't even have time to bring him his drink. Please tell you have that with you, Marty said. You didn't let the dynamic duo take it, did you? Relax, I have it in the car. You saw the maker's mark, right? Oh, I saw it. I can't believe the condition. It was like it was never played with. Donnie smiled. She was on the hook all right, and it was in deep. So you don't mind if I come and see you today? He said. Stop teasing me. Just get here. It'll take me about two and a half hours. 
I'll be waiting. He heard the purr in her voice, and he felt a sort of hunger stirring inside him. At thirty-six, Marty Wright was among the best in the business. Auction houses and museums from all over the world paid handsomely for her services. He'd once seen her take a representative from Lloyd's, $143,000 above his initial valuation, on a Victorian-era, closed-mouthed, bisque-head doll, despite the mountain of documentation and research he'd brought with him. She was confident, unrelenting in negotiations, and very beautiful. She was single, too. Donnie's wife hated her. Still smiling, he hung up. After lunch, he called his wife. Are you coming home to me? She said. I'm headed back that way, he said. He felt suddenly tired. This trip to Wilmington was his third road trip this week, and it was only Thursday. It'd be good to start the weekend off early, knowing that he'd just made a score that could leave him sitting pretty for months. The diner was just off the 40, and midday traffic was roaring by. Donnie leaned on the side of his Subaru, waiting while a heavy truck lumbered by, belching black diesel smoke into the air. When it was gone, he told Abigail about the doll and about what it may be worth. He hadn't said anything to Marty about the little dead girl in the picture or the blood stain on the doll, but he told Abigail. Oh, God, she said. That's horrible. A pause. I bet you took pictures, didn't you? He laughed again. Guilty. God, you're a sick man. Yeah, but I'm your man. She huffed. I suppose that means you have to stop in Raleigh on the way home. To see Marty, yeah. She grumbled under her breath. Don't be like that, he said. She's an expert on this stuff. More grumbling. Don't be jealous. She's not half the woman you are. Are you kidding? She's gorgeous. Abby, she's got nothing on you. You mean like the killer legs and big tits? You're right, she's got nothing on me. Come on, he said. Whatever. Are you mad at me? No, stupid, just missing you. Hurry home, okay? They said their goodbyes, and Donnie hung up. He popped the hatch back and shifted some of the boxes he'd taken from the attic so that the doll wouldn't get any direct sunlight during the car ride to Raleigh. It was a nice June day, very few clouds, and not too hot, but the windows would act like a magnifying glass and superheat anything left inside. He'd have to ask Marty for a storage box, he told himself, as he made the little nest for the doll and some of the dresses he'd taken from the attic. It was then that the little dead girl's picture shifted and slid out from under the clothes beneath the doll, and suddenly her dead face was staring up at him. Donnie gasped, his breath hitching in his throat. He stared at the girl, trying to swallow the lump that had formed in his throat, unable to move. His heart was hammering in his chest, For a while, during lunch, the initial unease he'd felt after first encountering the photo had faded, and he'd even laughed about it with Abigail on the phone. But now, looking at her picture like this, unexpectedly he was frozen. So much care had been taken to surround her with dignity, with pious goodwill. But to Donnie, the effect was not kind, not loving, but monstrously misguided and eerie, He could no more leave his gaze upon her than he could upon the sun, yet he couldn't look away. Some time later, he became aware of the heat of the sun on the back of his neck. 
He shivered and looked around. The parking lot was filling up, the lunch crowd rolling in, though nobody seemed to be paying him much mind. Donnie looked back at the little dead girl, her straight, oily black hair pulled back over her ears, her little pale hand resting on her belly. He closed his eyes and caught his breath, then cradled his face in his hands and wiped the cold sweat away that had collected there. He let out a long breath and threw one of Marianne Staples' dresses over the girl's picture. Then he tossed his iPhone in with his day bag, got in his car, and headed for Raleigh. Three hours later, he had the doll laid out on the glass coffee table in front of Marty Wright's black leather couch. She sat beside him in a knee-length gray skirt and clingy white top. Their hips were touching. This is just amazing, she said. She looked stunned, delighted, but stunned. I couldn't believe it either, Donnie said. Even covered in all that dust, I knew it was a Mueller. Oh, it's a Mueller, all right. There's no question about that. Marty straightened the doll's clothes and whistled. It's in almost perfect shape. Original clothes? The craftsmanship is simply... They just aren't words. Mueller did such powerful work. She shook her head in admiration. Wow. Donnie, you hit it out of the park on this one. You think so? She held his gaze. Out of the corner of his eye, he was aware of how the fabric of her blouse strained at her breasts, at the well-muscled curve of her calves, the strappy sandal dangling from her toes. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> Any idea how much it's worth? He asked. She sat back and crossed her legs toward him, her sandal dangling inches from his knee. I think you could take anything you wanted, she said. He forced himself not to look at her legs. I told Herb and Frank it might go as high as 130000 Easily, she said. One of her bangs fell down over her face. She let it stay. I'd have to do a proper prospectus on it before I could tell you for sure, but I bet you could make that the opening bid at the auction. The opening bid? It'd be a steal at that price. Donnie swallowed. His face felt hot. His palms were sweating. How long would it take you to do that, he managed to say. The prospectus? He nodded. That depends on how thorough you want me to be, she said. Her voice was a silken purr. Her eyes flashed. She touched his knee. Certainly overnight. He looked at her hand. He couldn't stop swallowing. Donnie was happily married, but if he was honest with himself, he didn't know what he'd do if she kept coming on to him like this. It felt like the room was spinning. Look, Marty, I... Unexpectedly, she took her hand away and leaned forward to examine the doll. The prominence is going to be your problem, she said. Her voice was suddenly clipped, businesslike. He looked at his knee where her hand had been. I... What? The prominence, she repeated. She seemed like a whole different person. Donnie gaped at her, not at all sure what was happening. Was she playing with him? Had he made her mad? He couldn't tell. But she was looking at him now, waiting for him to answer. His mind raced to catch up with what she had just said. But the daughter, we found the doll in her attic. He was babbling. Come on, he thought. Get it together, he said. I don't understand. Marty lifted the doll 
with all the care she would use on a real baby, and held it out at arm's length. So beautiful, she muttered. I'm still lost, Marty. What's the problem with the prominence? She continued to stare at the doll. You have no idea what you have here, do you? I, I guess not. She took the doll over to a stack of white orange boxes and moved boxes around until she found one that fit. She put the doll inside and adjusted its clothes and smoothed its hair, fussed over it like a nervous mother. It's a mule, she said at last. That's a sure deal. And it's the cleanest one I've ever seen, too. But if you could show that Mueller made it for his own child, well, then it wouldn't be a rare doll at all, would it? It'd be one of a kind, he said. Exactly, Marty said. Collectors of Mueller's work claim that every doll is made with love akin to magic. I don't know of any other doll maker who inspires a kind of admiration among collectors. They're like a cult. If you could prove that he made this for his daughter, well, there wouldn't be any love greater than that, would there? He shook his head. And looking at this doll, I can believe what all those collectors have been telling me over the years. I can feel it. Can you feel it? The corner of his mouth twitched. Sure, he said. Yeah, I feel it. She brought the doll, now in its box, back to the table and put it in front of him. It stared up at him, just like a little girl in a coffin, he thought. He shivered, forcing himself to look away from the blood stain on the doll's cheek. Marty was beaming at him, not flirting, but excited, eager. That doll could be worth millions, Donnie. He felt like the air had been knocked out of his lungs. Millions, he repeated. If you can prove the prominence, she reminded him. He sat there, his mind reeling with the idea of that much money in his bank account. He and Abigail could pay off the house, buy new cars. He could retire, take her to Venice, London, the Bahamas. Donnie's pulse raced. Abruptly, his casino eyes cleared, and again a darkening unease clouded his mind. What is it? she said. You okay? Yeah. He looked at the doll again, at the blood stain. Somewhere in the back of his mind, a small voice was telling him to stop. Don't go any further. But he forced it down. Millions of dollars, he thought. He said, what if I told you I had a picture that could prove he made it just for his daughter? She huffed. Then I'd kick you in the knee for not showing it to me the minute you walked in the door. He tried to smile, but couldn't quite pull it off. It's here, he said. He had a large plastic bin he was using to transport all the stuff from his car up to here. Donnie dug the little dead girl's picture out of that and handed it to Marty. That's Sally Staples, I believe, the sister of the woman whose attic I was exploring this morning. Marty's face blanched. Her lips parted in horrified shock. This is Dreadful, she said. Her voice was hushed. She closed her eyes. Donnie watched her breasts rise and fall with her breathing. She opened her eyes again, and one hand slowly came up to cover her mouth. Probably because she's noticed the blood, he thought. Marty, he said. She extended the picture out to him. Please, take that back, she said. Put it away. Cover it or something. Please. 
That's why I didn't show the picture right away. I, I knew that he trailed off there. Not sure what else to say. The picture had affected him, too. He wasn't surprised that it creeped her out, but he hadn't expected anything as severe as this. Her hand was still over her mouth, but it was her eyes he noticed. They were wet, shining with horror and dismay. He was pretty sure she was about to cry. Look, Marty. She cut him off with a wave of her hand. Just put it away, she insisted. Sure, okay, sure. He slipped the picture back into the bin and pulled a dress over it. When he turned back to Marty, she was over by her desk, taking out a bottle of scotch and a tumbler. She poured with a shaky hand, the neck of the bottle clanking against the rim of the glass. Marty sipped her drink. She wouldn't look at him. Her lips were pursed tightly together like she was trying to keep herself from trembling. Marty, we don't have to use this picture. I'm I'm sure there are other ways to prove the prominence. She put her drink down. She shook her head. No, she said. No, he said, and waited. Nothing. Marty, I know this is... No, she said. She looked at him. No. Take it away, Donnie. I don't want any part of this. Marty, don't be... No, she said. Take that doll out of here. I won't have any part of this. I won't. But Marty, you said millions. It could be billions. I don't care. She stared at him. This isn't about the money. Do you... Do you know what you have there? Donnie felt confused by the repeated question. He shrugged. No, I guess not. Donnie, I beg you, take that doll back where you got it. Put it back in that attic with that dead girl's picture and... And... She was stumbling over her words, uncertain of what to say. But Marty, what's wrong? Talk to me. I'm cold, she said. She looked miserable. She shivered, hugging herself. Donnie, a toy becomes something magic in the mind of a child. We forget that as adults. We grow old and they become objects to us, something our kids love and that we love because our kids love them. But there's a separation here. Our love is conditional on our children loving them. You see, we've changed, not the toys. The toys are the same as when we loved them as kids. They're still magic. It's us. Something inside us ossifies. We get hard or busy or callous. I don't know, but we lose something. We forget that toys have power. He almost smiled. He would have if she weren't so obviously scared. Marty, don't you think you're overreacting? I know it's creepy, but, I mean, come on. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime score for us. She shook her head again. No. No, toys are powerful, Donnie. And dolls are the most powerful of all. A child, a little girl, puts her heart into them. They're the beginnings of motherhood. And all the power that goes with that. They become more than toys. It's primal. It's an atavistic thing, Donnie. I think Mueller understood that. In fact, I'm sure he did. I look at that doll and at the way that dead girl's holding that doll, and I know that Mueller understood the power the doll represents. Call me stupid. I don't care. But I will not have any part of this. She stared at him, eyes burning with emotion. 
Then her voice softened as she went on. And Donnie, if you're smart, you won't either. Donnie didn't know what to say. He looked at her and shrugged. Just go, she said. Please, Donnie, go and take that with you. You're serious. She nodded. Okay, he said. He shook his head. Marty, I'm sorry. She scooped up her drink and downed it. Her eyes closed. She didn't open them while he packed up the storage bin and made his way to the door. He paused there, waiting for her to say something, to look at him even, but she never opened her eyes. Maybe next time, he said, and closed the door behind him as he left. Two years earlier, while on his fifth road trip in four days, Donnie had been using his iPhone to get directions to a hotel in Harrisburg. There was a convention there, and he was late. It was raining, morning rush hour traffic. He was trying to figure out what exit to take when his Subaru drifted into the oncoming lanes. There had been a horn, an 18-wheeler that looked like the side of a building filling up his windshield, and a lucky last-second cutback into his own lane. After that, he made himself promise not to use his phone while driving. But his visit to Marty Wright had confused him. Actually, if he was honest with himself, it made him angry. He needed to calm down, to hear a comforting voice. He called Abigail and told her about his visit, leaving out the parts about Marty's dangling sandal and her straining blouse and her hand on his knee. But he told her the rest. What do you want to do, she said. About what? Her question caught him off guard. About the doll. Are you going to take it back to Wilmington? It's worth millions, he said. That's a lot of money, she said. So why would you be asking me if I'm taking it back? Donnie, don't snap at me. You called me, remember? Obviously it bothers you. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking, right? She was right, of course. He was just mad at Marty for making this more difficult than it had to be. Abby didn't deserve this. I'm coming home, he said. Sweetheart, we're going to be rich. I always thought I'd look good married to a rich man. You and me both, baby. He was driving through Greensboro, about ten minutes from home, when his phone rang. It was Herb Cohen's number. Hey, Herb, what's... Donnie was cut off by the sound of something big, like a chandelier, shattering in his ear. The Subaru shimmied as he fumbled the phone. The driver of the beat-to-hell Ford pickup behind him laid on the horn. Donnie flinched. He hated driving. He could be a tiger when it came to auctions. He thrived on the ebb and flow of money, the electric mood of a room in a bidding frenzy. But behind the wheel, amid the ebb and flow of traffic, caught up with other drivers jockeying for position, he often felt rattled, even frightened. He tried to wave an apology to the angry redneck behind him, but the guy would have none of it. The pickup's engine roared as the driver accelerated around Donnie, yelling something that sounded like, Get off the fucking road, dickhead! out the window as he surged by. Donnie watched him go. Hard, frantic breathing came through the phone. Donnie looked at the phone in surprise. He'd forgotten he was still holding it. He put it back to his ear and listened. There were voices on the other end, panicked voices, bulleted by ragged breathing. Frank, is that you? The voices became inarticulate grunts. Frank? Donnie heard something thud, and then Frank... He was pretty sure it was Frank. His voice was deeper than Herb's. 
said something Donnie didn't quite catch. Frank, hey, are you okay? No answer. The line was open, but nobody was talking. Maybe he butt-dialed me, Donnie thought. He was about to hang up when he heard something, a small sound like somebody sobbing. Frank, is that you? He waited a beat. Herb? A car pulled away from the curb just ahead of him. He mashed down on his brakes, his stomach lurching into his throat as the distance to the other car closed at an alarming rate, but he missed it. He waited for the other guy, who didn't wave an apology, Donnie noticed bitterly, turned right at the next corner, and slipped away into a neighborhood. He was still holding the phone, he realized. Enough of this. He hung up and tossed it into the passenger seat. Focus on your driving, Donnie. That was it, he told himself as he pulled into his driveway. They butt-dialed me. Had to be. Frankly, he was too tired to assign more meaning to it than that. It had been a long day of driving, of angry rednecks in traffic, of having Marty Wright twist him around her finger like he was made of rubber. He was exhausted. He didn't even want to unpack. He just wanted a shower, maybe some dinner, and then bed. Getting to bed early would be nice. Abigail greeted him at the back door and helped him bring in the boxes of stuff he'd taken from the attic in Wilmington. They put it all in his office. She took the lid off the doll's storage box and leaned it up against the backrest of the armchair in the corner of his office. Donnie didn't want to look at it. But Abigail took a step back from it and crossed her arms over her chest, cocking her head from side to side as she studied the doll. It is beautiful, she said. He grunted by way of reply. Standing inside the storage box like that, it reminded him of the Old West outlaws they used to photograph in their coffins along with the men who brought them in. Hard to believe somebody would pay millions for it, though. When he turned to ask her about dinner... She was looking at the picture of the little dead girl. This is her? He nodded. His lips. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
pressed firmly closed. It was a different time, wasn't it? She said. Imagine posing your dead child like this. Must have been so painful. Yeah. Listen, I'm going to take a shower, okay? Okay, she said. She put the picture down. Go take your shower. The steam will do you good. And it did, too. Donnie stood under the water, shoulders slumped, feeling tired and depleted. He toweled off, pulled on a pair of jeans and a ragged Penn State t-shirt, and went out to the kitchen. His nose hadn't completely cleared, but at least he could smell the stew now. He thought he might even be able to stay awake long enough to enjoy it. Donnie passed through the saloon doors that separated the living room from the kitchen. He expected to see Abigail hovering over her cooking the way she'd like to do, but instead he saw the dining room table knocked askew. One of the black wooden chairs toppled, and behind that, Abigail sprawled on the floor. Abigail! He rushed to her side and turned her over in his arms. Her body was stiff as a piece of furniture, but it was the look frozen on her face that caused him to recoil. Abigail's eyes were wide open and staring at something beyond the ceiling. Her mouth was twisted into a scream. A long black lock of her beautiful hair hung over her cheek. Her expression was one of such abject horror and fear that he didn't immediately recognize that she was dead. Abigail? No. Oh, Jesus, no. He scrambled back from her until he ran into the wall and collapsed, his legs stretched out before him. Donnie froze there in panic. For a long moment, he sat staring at her, unable to take it all in. There was no sound but his own taxed breathing. Take her pulse, he thought. CPR. Anything. Do something. He extended a trembling hand toward her, but he couldn't make himself touch her. It was too horrible. That look on her face. Something moved off to his right. His gaze snapped toward the saloon doors and his eyes widened. Beyond the doors, a pair of legs. Black shoes. Black stockings. The swish of a black, papery dress. Donnie shook his head. He pressed his fists into his eyes as though to grind the vision out. When he took his hands away, the saloon doors were swinging inward. He jumped to his feet and ran through the kitchen and into the front parlor. For a moment, the thought that played over and over in his head was, this is where they used to hold funerals. This is where they used to hold funerals. She was behind him, the little dead girl. He couldn't hear her, but he could sense her. He could feel the dust and the cold gathering at his back, creeping through the sun-bright kitchen coming for him. Again, he bolted, this time to the office, where he slammed the door shut. He came to a stop in the middle of the room, staring around at the clutter that came from a lifetime of hunting antiques. The doll, standing like a corpse in its white casket box, stared back at him with its huge round eyes. The little dead girl's picture was there, too. The color fell away from his face. His knees buckled. Her eyes were open and they were locked on his, vacant and empty, yet somehow weighing him, judging him. No, he said. His voice sounded like a sigh. No. Lurching back, he turned to flee, but 
There was nowhere he could go. He realized that like a slap in the face. Donnie thought of the call he'd received from Herb and Frank. It was horror he'd heard in Frank's voice. He knew that now. The same chest-clenching fear that had killed Abigail and put that awful death mask on her face. And now, the little dead girl was coming for him. He heard her footsteps on the tile on the other side of the door. It was locked, but he knew that wouldn't matter to her. He knew that just as surely as he knew she'd passed over Marty Wright. Spared her because she'd refused to have anything to do with the doll. It was strange to him how clear and reasonable that knowledge was. He knew it was so. He knew it just as he knew the little dead girl was coming now for her doll. The one she'd marked with her own blood. Donnie began to scream, but that didn't last long. A moment later, the doorknob creaked and turned, like something long dead groaning back toward life. I always learn something from our stories. This time, I now know why the living room is called the living room. Thank you for that story, Joe. By the way, a little crimson stain first appeared in Attic Toys, edited by Jeremy Shipp. I have one quick note to share before moving on to the next Joe McKinney tale for the evening. Kevin Lucia, whose Horror 101 segments have been enlightening us and expanding our horror horizons for nearly two years now, has a new book out from Crystal Lake Publishing. It's fiction, and it's called Things Slip Through. It is a rather wonderful book. It's being called A Collection. Well, what Ray Bradbury would have called it was an accidental novel, a novel that emerges from the telling of multiple tales all set in one place. And we'll just go get a copy. It's on Kindle for four ninety nine, and is well worth the price. And I believe beginning today, this Friday, it is also available as a trade paperback. Next, The Gunner's Love Song by Joe McKinney. As mentioned, Joe is a San Antonio police sergeant. Before being promoted to sergeant, Joe worked as a homicide detective and as a disaster mitigation specialist. So many of his stories, regardless of genre, feature a strong police procedural element based on 15 years of law enforcement experience. Here, then, is Joe McKinney's The Gunner's Love Song. Sheriff John Morrison was a big man, 6'3", 260 pounds in his boots, slack brim Stetson cowboy hat, and a chocolate brown suit. He had a strong, proud chin, a drooping Teddy Roosevelt-style mustache, and sleepy, nut-colored eyes that had seen much and feared little. 
people around Sabine County said he'd come home from the Great War with his eyes like that, sleepy, yet with an intensity behind him that withered most men. He was the only man from my youth with the stones to stand up to my daddy. And daddy was on one of his benders. And growing up, I respected him and even feared him because of that power he seemed to have over other men. And now, sitting in his office, a lazy metal fan turning on the windowsill with a steady clack, 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 I had those eyes focused on me again. Two days before, I'd been in a hotel bar in New York City, sipping mint juleps with a lovely flaxen-haired gal from Iowa, two of us enjoying my recent release from the Army, when I'd received a telegram from Morrison telling me my cousin Mike had got himself into some serious trouble. Now, my cousin Mike has a problem. He stutters. People hear him talk, and they think he's retarded, which he ain't. When the two of us were kids, folks took to calling him Machine Gun Mike. He hated it, and I hated hearing it. Still, it was pretty accurate as far as nicknames go, because his stutter makes him sound like he's spitting bullets. But when Morrison told me why I had just raced halfway across the country, I nearly laughed in his face. War will do that to you. The giants of our youth become merely men, and sometimes even the objects of our pity. A girl, I said, staring Morrison square in the eye. You called me back here because Mike is having trouble with a girl? Is that why you got him locked up? That's for his own protection. From who? He held up both hands and patted the air like that was supposed to calm me down. Let me explain. I bet that'll be a riot, I said. And it was, too, because what he told me was a lunatic's tale. Recently, there had been seven murders along County Road 153, the dirt road that winds north past my cousin's house into the pine forest of northern Louisiana, and from there to God knows where. Mike and I had wandered that road many times in our youth, and I knew most of the folks who lived along it. They were all poor, just good old-fashioned backwoods folks. Their homes, simple weather-beaten shacks that were even smaller and humbler than the little house Mike and I shared with his dad after my daddy died. All seven victims had come from those simple folks, two men and five women. The bodies had been chewed to pieces, like a pack of wild dogs had done it, and the whole county was up in a roar. Armed men started patrolling the road at night, hard drinkers with rifles, most of them. Two nights before my arrival, at the same time I was enjoying the company of my flaxen-haired Iowa nurse, those patrols had seen a large dog-like thing skulking through Myrtle Ferguson's backyard. They shot it, and they saw it fall, but when they checked to see what it was they'd shot, all they found was the naked body of a young, black-haired woman named Rosalinda Villalobos. Now there are witnesses, Morrison assured me. All those men swear up and down that what they shot was a dog or a wolf or something like that. They were drunk, I said, unimpressed. They made a mistake. Yeah, I know, he said. I thought of that. First thing, that's what I thought. But you see, this Villalobos woman, she had a reputation. What kind of reputation? He sighed. People around here claim she was a witch. A witch, he nodded. I see. I looked briefly at my fingernails, then back at Morrison. 
In that moment, I realized the number of sacred monuments from my youth had just been reduced by one. You mind telling me what this has to do with Mike? She's one Mike was involved with, Morrison said. He's crazy in love with her, Tom. I mean, crazy. You know the way some men get wild in the head. That floored me. My first instinct was that this girl would talk Mike into doing something illegal. It hadn't even occurred to me to think of Mike's falling in love. I guess even I hadn't figured he'd had that kind of emotional sophistication. Not the gunner. But then the implications of what I was thinking hit me. I was ashamed. I lowered my voice. Has he tried to hurt himself? I asked. No, not yet. So why did you put him in a cell? Morrison looked down at his desk, pushed the blotter around, fidgeting with it. Look, Tom, it's like this. Folks around here believe that woman was bad news. I don't believe she was a witch any more than you do. Those people were terrified of her. Still are. After they killed her, they chucked her body in the peach orchard up near the start of the pines. I licked my teeth while I thought about that. The peach orchard hadn't been a working orchard since before the war with the Union. Sabine County's always had a lot of poor people, both black and white. And the peach orchard was where the blacks buried their people that didn't have any family or friends to pay for grave marker. For those people up in the pine country to toss a white woman, even a white woman with some Mexican blood in her, into an unmarked grave in the peach orchard, they must have really hated her. Morrison went on. Mike was real upset by that, Tom. Sometime during the night, he went there and dug her up. I wanted to scoff at him and tell him Mike would never do something that stupid or crazy, but when I looked in his sleepy, world-weary eyes, I knew every word of it was true. A couple boys found her body next morning. Where? I asked. Mike's front yard. My stomach turned over. Folks up in the pine country was plenty pissed. They took the body and pitched it back into the peach orchard. Then they came back looking for Mike. When they got there, they was fixing to lynch him. My mind raced through the options, trying to figure out what, if anything, I could do for Mike. The old big brother instincts I'd always had for Mike were stronger than ever. Like I'd never been gone at all. And I knew the only thing I could do to help him was to keep him close. Mind if I take him home? I asked. I was kind of hoping you would, Morrison confided. He led me back to the cells, which I remembered well from all those horrible Sunday mornings when I'd wake up to Sheriff Morrison banging on the screen door of our house, yelling for me to get dressed and come with him to fetch my daddy. Little had changed. Many of the same faces looked out at me their hands gripping the bars, their faces staring at me like morose, drunken butterflies in some grotesque bug collection. Morrison opened Mike's cell. Mike came out, head hung low, shoulders stooped. He looked like he wanted to disappear into the shadows. He was sadder than I'd ever seen him before, which is maybe why he looked older than I remember. But little else had changed. He still wore his pants hitched up too high, his skin still had that flabby, unhealthy paleness to it. Hadn't combed his hair. I pulled him into the yellow circle of light that an overhead lamp made on the floor, straightened his hair. You okay? I asked him. 
he muttered something. One of the other prisoners yelled at him, Hey, Gunner, what day is it? I hadn't heard anybody use his nickname out loud since Mike and I started to run around together. The sound of it snapped something inside me. Mike looked up at the man with watery eyes that wanted so much to be liked. Saturday, he stuttered, and that brought a loud, braying laugh from the cells. I went over to the man's cell and punched him through the bars, laying him out on the floor. The laughing stopped. You mind if I take him home now, Sheriff? I asked. No, said Morrison, staring at the man in the cell. He was on his back, breathing noisily through a red blossoming flower of blood that had once been his nose. Go ahead. We drove back to Mike's house, and the 27 Ford his daddy left him stopped in the doorway, a cloud of white dust settling across the trash-strewn yard ahead of us. Mike hadn't said a word since leaving the jail, and I didn't push him. I figured he'd come around sooner or later. The house where I had grown up was an absolute wreck. Mike's daddy had been a good man, a kind man, but not a strong one. In the last years of his life, he let his home slide into shabbiness. And when Mike took over, the slide just sort of kept on sliding, but at an accelerated rate. I looked up at the gray two-story wood frame house and sighed. A corner near the kitchen window had been threatening to cave in since I was a kid. It still hadn't fallen. It drooped over the yard like the brim of an old hat. The porch sagged in the middle and its support beams tilted at uncertain angles. The roof, no doubt full of holes, looked like a checkerboard of black and gray tar strips, and the whole place was up to his waist in yellowing alkali grass. I was wondering how bad it was inside when Mike finally spoke. I've been meaning to paint it, he said. I put my hand on his shoulder and guided him towards the front door. It's okay, I said. We'll do it together. The inside was as bad as I'd thought, so crowded with ruined furniture that I barked my shin with every step. Water had come through a hole in the ceiling, and the wood floor near a far corner of the living room was dark, probably rotted through. I made my way to the kitchen and sat down while Mike made us coffee. Outside, the sky was coloring with the pink and gold and darkling purple of an East Texas sunset, the kind I'd missed so much during the war. A cool breeze stirred the curtains of an open window in the dining room, and I smelled the scent of country pine mingled with the dust. Tell me about her, Mike, I said. Mike put our coffees on the table and sat down next to me. It occurred to me then that the truly remarkable thing about Mike was the honesty of his expressions. For another man might have tried to hide the naked pain of lost love I saw in his face. I loved her, he said, with a stiff set to his mouth and chin that almost dared me to challenge him. And she loved me. That seemed to say everything that needed to be said in his mind, and I nodded. Okay, I said. Okay, he answered back, like we'd settled something. I waited. I have a picture, he said. He got up suddenly and went into the living room. When he came back, he put a picture frame in my hand 
I took it and studied the girl I saw there. This is Rosalinda, I said. He nodded. She wasn't an attractive woman, to be sure, but her eyes were full of a vital spark that gave her face character and kindness. They were as black as her hair, tucked in beneath a large, heavy brow line that shaded her face with one continuous, unbroken eyebrow. He told me how they'd met. She'd wandered onto the property, looking for milkweed root, and came upon him while he was trying to fix the burned valves on his tractor's motor. The two of them talked all afternoon. By the time Mike went to bed that night, he was hopelessly in love. It was at that point that I realized how unfairly I judged him when I doubted his ever falling in love, for he clearly loved Rosalinda Villalobos in that same absolutely honest and genuine way in which he expressed all his emotions. He was like a child in the uncomplicated purity of his heart. Yet he moved from one emotional extreme to another with furious speed. As he told me how the mob had denied Rosalinda a decent burial, Even as he knelt over her dead body and pleaded with them, he became so angry, I thought for a moment he might start throwing things around the room. They told me she deserved to rot in the street like a dog, he said, his voice thick with sobs. I looked him straight in the eye and asked him if he'd dug up her body. No he said, and the word sounded like a judge's gavel pounding the bench. Then how, I asked. That was her, he said. She was trying to come back to me. I let out a long sigh, seeing a long road to recovery ahead of him. I tried to reason with him, asking all sorts of questions designed to get at the truth but the honesty never left his face. He stood firmly by the belief that death was not the end for his beloved Rosalinda and that not even the graves could keep her from coming back to him. Though I never lost my patience, I finally got to the point where I couldn't listen anymore. I sent him to bed. As for myself, I slept only in fits, tossing and turning on the couch all night. The next morning, Rosalinda's body was waiting for us on the front lawn. I was angry, and for the first time in my life, I yelled at Mike, convinced now he'd lied to me. I accused him of sneaking out behind my back, digging up that poor girl and dragging her corpse back here. But his motives were a mystery to me, for he flatly denied any wrongdoing, and though the words sick and perverted lingered on the tip of my tongue, I couldn't bring myself to save him. Let me see your hands, I said, taking them in my own and studying his fingernails for telltale signs of dirt. I saw none. Come with me, I said, and led him upstairs to his room. I searched everywhere, looking for sweaty clothes or dirty boots or anything that would confirm my accusations. She came back for me, Mike said. I told you she would. Shut up, I roared at him. He took his boat by surprise, the anger in my voice. He backed into a corner and hung his head while I ran my hands through my hair, wondering what in hell to do. Tell me the truth, Mike, I said. Did you dig that girl up? He shook his head. Look me in the eye 
and say the words, I said. He did. He looked me straight in the eye and pleaded innocent. She came back to me, he said. She loves me. Okay, I said. Come on. Where we going, he asked, following me down the stairs and out onto the lawn like a puppy. We're going to bury your girl good and proper. Looking at Rosalinda's face, I felt a tinge of panic. This was not the same girl I had seen in Mike's picture frame the night before. Rather, she was, only changed. Those eyes, those eyes that had seemed to possess such kindness in the photograph, no longer seemed kind. They were bloodless, mean, wide open and fixed. To my surprise, they hadn't milked over with cataracts the way they usually do in a dead body. I looked deep into them and shuddered. The prominent brow ridge was gone, too, and with it the single eyebrow. In its place was a delicate, decidedly feminine brow, high and smooth, sensuous. She was pale. I expected that, of course, but not the rosy, shapeless patches on her cheeks. Those seemed unnatural. Definitely not right. I knelt down next to her and looked at her hands. Her fingernails and the palms of her hands were caked with brown ditch mud, the kind found all through the peach orchard further up the road. Her simple white dress was stained with dirt, too. What are you doing? Mike asked. As I ran my finger along the leading edge of Rosalinda's top teeth, nothing, I said, took my hand away. But it was at that moment and a new thought took shape in my mind. Back in the war, my platoon was part of Patton's spearhead through France. At one point, we got so far ahead of the main force that we had to stop and spend two days in a little town on the banks of the Sone River. As I washed the dust from my hands at a pump on the side of our house and watched an angry crowd of about 20 men coming up the gradual rise of the front lawn, I thought about those simple folk in that French village, all the funny superstitions they'd shared with me over dinner and endless bottles of wine. I didn't find those superstitions quite as funny now as I had then, though. I grabbed an axe handle, came up next to Mike as one of the men was mounting the steps to the porch. I hit the man in the gut with a hard backhanded slap that doubled him over. Then I kicked him in the face, and I sent him sprawling on his back at the feet of the crowd. Two more men charged us. A moment later, both were on the ground, one holding his shattered knee and the other on his hands and knees, swaying drunkenly while he spit out teeth and blood onto the grass. Get off our land, I said, walking down the steps toward the crowd. They backed up a few steps before somebody in the back yelled, That retard done crossed the line! There was a murmur of agreement as the others took courage from the defiant voice and stopped retreating. Several of them muttered threats. Bring us that witch's body, somebody yelled. She's not here, I said. That was a lie, of course. She was underneath the tarp in the woodshed waiting to be buried. We know that retard dug her up, the crowd shouted. Look, I said, staring at each of them in turn. I've just come back from the war and I'm having a rough time of it. If you don't get off this land, I'm liable to shoot the lot of you and tell the sheriff I thought you was all a bunch of Germans. Now get yourselves gone. 
I did my best to look insane, and I think more than a few of them bought it. I am Tom Gillis' son, after all. The apple don't fall far from the tree. They took a collective step back. One of the crowd, I couldn't tell who, shouted that our house was likely to catch fire one night soon. I looked around for the one who dared to say it, but before I could respond, a single rifle shot split the morning air. Everybody wheeled around, and there stood Morrison, a smoking rifle on his hip, his sleepy eyes shining. Ain't gonna be no fire, he said. You folks get back to your homes. A murmur spread through the crowd, but the rifle shot seemed to have broken their resolve. Go on, Morrison said, slowly grumbling their frustration. They started to disperse. When they were gone, Morrison stepped on the porch, looking with disapproval at my axe handle. Some men, he said, they come back from a war and they still got the war in their heads. About you, Tom. You still got the war in your head? I handed the axe handle to Mike and told him to put it back in the shed. We both watched him go. I'm pretty well adjusted, I said, once Mike was gone. Morrison spit in the grass. Well, well, what? Don't play dumb with me, he said, his finger in my face. That's twice I've had to do this, so don't. You know what I want to know. He didn't do it, I said. Morrison looked deep into my eyes. I have your word on that. You do. Okay, he said, his voice softening to a husky grumble. A few minutes later, he was gone, a cloud of white dust in his wake. We buried Rosalinda in the backyard beneath a majestic, moss-covered black elm. No more peach orchard for her. Mike went out to the roadside to gather blackberry blossoms for her grave while I sat on the porch, whittling one end of the axe handle to a sharp point with my knife. That night, I put Mike to bed and promised him when he woke the next morning Everything would be just fine. Then I went downstairs, opened the back door, the one that looked out on Rosalind's grave, dropped down on the couch and waited. It was nearly two o'clock in the morning when I heard footsteps on the back porch. Without bothering to get up, I said, Hello, Rosalinda. Hello, she said, and smiled wickedly. Two sharp white points poked out from under her upper lip. Come in. You're invited. Her smile widened. Where's Mike Gilly? He's upstairs, I said, sleeping. I want to see him. Yeah, I said, sitting up. I bet you do. I reached under the couch, pulled out the axe handle. But that ain't going to happen, Rosalinda. She stared at the pointed end of the stick, and then at me. Fool, she said. Who do you think you are? His guardian angel. I love him, she hissed. He loves me. I've come for him. I know you loved him, I said, standing up. And for that, I thank you. But you can't have him. She ran at me, dagger-like fingernails slashing the air between us. I ducked the blows and plunged the point of the axe handle into her heart. She died. It's time for good, with a scream still trying to escape her lips. By sunrise, I was done reburying Rosalinda, 
And as I brushed dirt from my clothes, I wondered what I would tell Mike. How could I make him understand the murky complexity of superstition when my own mind was stretched to the breaking point trying to take it all in? I could tell him of creatures of the night, how a werewolf killed in her animal form was doomed to return as a vampire. But what would be the point? It was too fragile for that. It might cause him to snap. But then, as I mounted the stairs, it occurred to me that I didn't need to tell Mike anything. He had all the answers he needed. He loved honestly, deeply, and had been loved in his turn. That was a prize few men could ever claim. For hadn't Rosalinda, of all the possible places she could go, chose three times to return to Mike's door? I imagined her struggles to claw her way out of the ground, and then the long, moonlit walk to Mike's door before she ran out of the cover of night. The morning's light caused her to shut down, to slip into a catatonic state just a few steps short of her destination, and her lover's neck. Mike didn't need to know any of that. He only needed the assurance that his love had meant more to Rosalinda than death itself. Let him take strength from that and let time cure him of his grief. Thank you for that, Joe. The Gunner's Love Song originally appeared as an Amazon short in 2007, and it was dedicated to Manly Wade Wellman. And reading that reminds me, we must do some of Wellman's tales sometime soon. Yes, I'm always amazed at how many people are unfamiliar with Wellman. Well, we'll see about that. Both of Joe's stories tonight were read to us by Mr. Stephen Thomas Howell. Steve is a former military guy, 23 years in uniform, and he's now an MFA writing student at the University of Tampa in Florida. Back in show number 74, we heard Jonathan Dance read Stephen's Look Away. That's a story I quite liked. Look Away was a story about a gravedigger in the Confederate Army near the end of the Civil War. You remember that? Yes. Well, it's available on Amazon Kindle for just 99 cents. Go to Amazon, put in Stephen Thomas Howe, that's Stephen with a V, and there you'll be. And that Children of the Night is that. Be off with you for another week. By your next visit, I expect the season will have progressed. We may have snow on the ground and balanced on the trees and wires above. Don't you love the hush that deep snow brings to a great city at night? All things suspended, sounds distant, muffled. Few people out and about, and those who are, are hurrying home and elsewhere. Well, that is for another night. Tonight the silence will owe itself to the hour, the darkness, so 
scoot on home. And as you do, try to not think of antique dolls with pale and fragile skin and large round eyes. Try to not hear the scurry in the brush and among the leaves. Think not of little feet and dark shoes and a black papery dress. Try to stay focused. Keep to the track. Think on warmth and home and bed and of pleasant dreams. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.